Hello, I'm Zeb Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views expressed in this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, our dialogue today will be on something called contextualized care. And our guests are going to provide a great deal of insight into this topic. In fact, in fact, they wrote the book on this topic. It's called Listening for What Matters, Avoiding Contextual Errors in Healthcare. I just want to start out by saying that I do not consider this an esoteric or academic topic, quite the opposite. I consider this to be one of the most serious issues that has plagued our healthcare delivery system for decades. Not many of you know that I spent the first decade of my career as an attending physician in academics, and my area of concentration was, in fact, on studying and understanding how providers, mostly physicians, listened to and communicated with their patients. I studied this topic, taught this topic, and over the course of my career have spent more time sitting in exam rooms in the corner observing how healthcare is actually being delivered at that point of care. And I'll say this. It is eye-opening, and I have to say, not in a good way. One question that I ask many of my guests is what they would recommend to healthcare leaders, the C-suites of healthcare systems across the country. Well, here's my recommendation to healthcare leaders, both administrative as well as clinical. And it doesn't matter if you're still seeing patients, because it's really quite different to watch someone else seeing patients. I would recommend go spend some time sitting in exam rooms while providers are actually seeing patients. I know a lot of leaders do administrative rounds, but this is quite different. You really get a sense of what healthcare is like when you're actually watching it happen, when you're in the room being quiet and listening. You really get to see how challenging it is for both providers as well as patients. And you really begin to understand why so many of the problems we have today in healthcare exist. So I think this topic of contextualized care is one of the most important challenges we need to address and fix in our healthcare system. Fortunate for us today, our guests are literally the world's experts in this domain. They've spent over 15 years working on this problem and have recorded and analyzed literally thousands upon thousands of provider-patient encounters. I've read their book. I've learned a lot from it. To be honest with you, I wish I had these two experts as mentors earlier on in my career. Now, before I formally introduce our guests, I'm going to make a request of you. If you listen to the podcast, you find value in it, I'd like you to share it with your colleagues. Also, please rate it on whatever app you're using. Rating the podcast actually helps others find it. A number of you have been rating the podcast. You've been sharing it on LinkedIn and Twitter. And to those of you who have already begun, as well as to those of you who are going to rate the podcast right after listening today, I greatly appreciate you taking a moment to spread the podcast and more importantly, to spread the word on creating a new healthcare. So I can't tell you how excited I am to speak to Dr. Saul Wiener and Dr. Alan Schwartz. Let me briefly, briefly introduce them to you. Dr. Wiener is co-founder, along with Dr. Schwartz, of the Institute for Practice and Provider Performance Improvement. Dr. Wiener is a professor of medicine, pediatrics, and medical education at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and is deputy director of the Research Center of Innovation for Complex Chronic Healthcare at the Veterans Health Administration. Dr. Wiener is a graduate of the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. He completed his residency at the University of Chicago 
and is a former Robert Wood Johnson Foundation generalist physician faculty scholar. Dr. Schwartz is, as I mentioned, a co-founder of the Institute for Practice and Provider Performance Improvement. He is the Michael Reese Endowed Professor of Medical Education and a research professor of pediatrics at the University of Illinois at Chicago. His research focuses on contextualizing care. Dr. Schwartz received his PhD in cognitive psychology and a master's in business at the University of California, Berkeley. He is currently enrolled in the JD program at the University of Illinois Chicago School of Law. When he completes that, he will be a doctor twice over. As I mentioned, Dr. Schwartz and Dr. Wiener co-authored the book on contextualized care, listening for what matters, avoiding contextual errors in healthcare. One more thing before we jump in, I was fortunate enough to be introduced to their work and to them through Yoni Stein, the CEO, co-founder of Laguna Health, who is also joining us today. And actually, it's we have a party going on here. Dr. Alan Spiro, who's the chief medical officer of Laguna Health, is also on the line. Yoni and Dr. Spiro will be sitting in the background, but may pop in if we have a question for them or if they've got a comment. I have to say, if you haven't listened to the interview I did with Yoni Stein, it was episode 124. We posted it on November 3rd, 2021, about half a year ago. I would urge you to listen to it. Yoni and his colleagues, Dr. Spiro, and, and now Dr. Schwartz and Dr. Wiener, have built a home-based care ecosystem model that is based on contextualized care, on deploying it through technology, uh, through operations, and really scaling it. It's an incredibly humanistic reframe of healthcare delivery. And I have to tell you that meeting these folks and listening to them and reading their work, it's really changed the way I am thinking and actually the way I'm doing my work in this domain. So Saul and Alan, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you. Great. Thanks. It's terrific to be here. Well, thank you both. So I'm not sure who to direct this question to, but before we talk about the why and get into some of the details, I would suspect that most listeners are not familiar with what contextualized care means. So could one of you start by just defining what do you mean by contextualized care? Yeah, sure. This is Saul. I'll, I think I'll give it uh, the first crack. Um, I, I got interested in this almost 20 years ago when I was a junior attending. And uh, what I'm going to say probably reminds you of some of the comments you made a few minutes ago about sitting and observing. As you know, attending physicians, supervising residents typically hear about a patient in the back room and then go in to see the patient with the resident. And what I noticed, this kind of pattern, again, I was kind of new at being on the attending side at, at that point. And what I noticed was that the resident would come back and present the patient to me and it sounded, it sounded good. They, they kind of knew the research evidence, they looked everything up and it seemed like they had a plan. And we'd walk in to see the patient together and often, in the conversation that followed, issues would start to emerge. It'd start to discover there were things going on in that person's life. It could be that they couldn't afford something or that they had, had lost a key caregiver or that they were suddenly responsible for taking care of somebody else was, who was ill or, um, or it could be something good, like they got a job and they're working the night shift. And any of these uh, in the context of the, the clinical presentation could be critical. Uh, it often, it turned out that what we thought was gonna be a good plan just wasn't gonna work at all. Uh, there was no way that person was going to actually be able to do what we suggested they do, or they weren't going to be able to do it in a way that was going to be safe and effective. And, and then the conversation would then lead to kind of a revised plan. And we come up with something that actually did make sense and was going to work for that patient. And so after this happened a number of times, I started to think, wow, this is a quality of care issue. There's something going on here that we don't really have a name for uh, that is critical to getting care, care right. And, and if you don't get it right, there's something that has been really quite quite honestly, a mistake. And so at that point, we kind of coined the term contextual error to describe a situation where a care plan 
basically looks good on paper. It meets the clinical guidelines. It's based on research evidence, but it's still not the right plan for that person. And so that became, the term we came up with then, as I said, was contextual error. And then of course, the flip side of that is, is contextualizing care. It's going through that process of recognizing that there's some issue in that person's life that needs to be considered and addressed in order for the care plan to, to work. And you know, I'm a doctor. I'm not. A, I wasn't really a researcher in, in the way that Alan is. And so Alan and I started having conversations. We've known each other for a long time. We both came as junior faculty to the university. And Alan is an incredible methodologist. He's a very strong statistical and study design uh, background. And that's how we started kind of working together to kind of frame this and figure out how we we're going to study it and how we we're going to measure it. And so contextualizing care is really about adapting care to a patient's individual life context. Mm -hmm. Alan, could you provide a patient vignette, a story that illustrates this notion of contextualized versus non-contextualized care? Sure. I mean, there's a, a story in our book, and um, since I'm not the physician here, if I get the medical details wrong, I'll, I'll lean on Saul. Uh, but there's a story in our book about a patient who was presenting to the emergency room and uh, was having issues related to not getting dialysis. And she kept getting dialyzed in the emergency room and, and sent home and told, you know, you really need to make your dialysis appointments until finally, uh, fourth ER visit, I think, um, a medical student asked her um, about what was going on in her life and why she was having trouble uh, getting to her visits. And it turned out that um, she was taking care of a kid who also needed uh, care and who got his care at a different uh, location, and um, it was not possible for her to uh, simultaneously take care of herself and um, take care of her kid, and she was choosing her kid, um, as many of us might. Um, and once that came to light, the, the team was able to figure out, well, what if we have the care for both of these uh, patients done at the same center? Um, then they can make all of their appointments. Uh, we can make sure that transportation works out properly and so on. And once you appreciate that contextual factor, that part of her life that isn't really a medical thing, but is critical to getting her medical plan right. Um, now she doesn't come back to the ER. Now she's getting her dialysis. Um, things work much better. Yeah. How big a problem is this? As you've been doing your research, is this in terms of prevalence, as you've observed it now for, for many, many years and, and thousands upon thousands of encounters that you've recorded and, and analyzed and studied and published on, small, big, large problem in healthcare? So I think actually both of us can comment on this. Um, you know, I it's it's huge. And I think what's interesting about these cases is of which we have, as you said, thousands. Uh, each time we talk about one of these cases, the response is typically, oh, that's obvious. Of course, of course you should do that. Like, of course you should, should know that this, this patient who's coming back to the ER all the time is Got something going on. Of course, you, you know, and what we found is that there's something about the way in which our healthcare system is churning patients. Um, and it could be uh, the, the, the sort of pressures to complete everything in the medical record or the, the kind of task focused orientation of medical training, particularly during internship and residency, which kind of turns all of us into these uh, efficient task completers. There's something about, uh, in fact, there are many things about the culture of healthcare and the culture of the way in which we're trained and the way in which we think that makes these so-called obvious mistakes happen all the time. And what, what Alan and I have been doing over the years is, is measuring the problem uh, through a couple of, of methods. Uh, what, one method, probably the one we've done at the largest scale, is inviting patients to carry audio recorders into their visits. 
and getting permission to look at their medical records. And we've had a whole team doing this for a long time. And we've developed a standard way of determining whether a contextual error occurred or not. And, and, uh, and, and just briefly, I'll tell you how it works. Um, it's basically there were four things that our coding team looks for. They look for any clue that a patient is struggling with a life issue that could be complicating their care. You know, missing appointments, not refilling meds, losing control of a chronic condition. Uh, then they look to see whether the, the physician or other healthcare professional noticed and asked about it. Then after that, uh, they look to see whether the patient revealed some life issue that's actionable. Uh, that we could help them with, um, like they're taking care of a, a grandchild who, or a child who, uh, who also needs healthcare, and that's getting in the way of, of their, their healthcare needs. And then finally, if that's revealed, we listen for whether the healthcare professional, typically a physician, attempts to address it in some way. And if we all, all four of those things fail, if that final step doesn't occur, we say it's a contextual error. We have found uh, in, in thousands of encounters uh, that in about 40%, at least of ambulatory visits, there is a contextual factor, meaning there's some life issue that if not addressed and taken into account in the healthcare plan will lead to a care that it planned is, that is either gonna fail or partially fail, even if it looks perfect in the medical record. And then of those, we found that about 40% of the time, the healthcare professional, again, typically a physician, misses it. So in about 16% of all healthcare encounters, there is a contextual error, meaning the healthcare plan is unlikely to work. It's gonna fall short of what's expected um, because of an inatt inattention to patient life context. And then lastly, what we've done is we follow these patients for months, uh, typically for six months, four to six months to look at outcomes. And we've seen that when a health contextual error occurs, that is predictive of a poor outcome. So we know that this is not something that's just academic, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, but it's something that has a measurable effect on a prospectively defined healthcare outcome. And again, Alan, I don't know if you'd like to add something to that. Well, that it's, I mean, it's a measurable effect on the patient. Their, their presenting situation doesn't get better. And then we've also shown um, that that has a direct impact on healthcare costs. Um, that uh, patients who don't get better obviously have to continue to be taken care of, in some cases get readmitted into the hospital, um, and that's very expensive. Um, we did a study in the VA system um, where we were estimating millions of dollars uh, saved by improving the ability of um, providers to contextualize. Yeah, we also did a study, as you know, Alan, because you, you led this one outside the VA, uh, where we measured it very precisely uh, with unannounced standardized patients. So we trained actors uh, to portray being real patients. We got permission from uh, dozens of, uh, from over hundred physicians around the Chicago area and also Milwaukee to not know when they were seeing a fake patient. We created fake medical records, worked with the electronic medical record systems to do all that, fake insurance, very complex study, uh, federally funded. And what we did is we uh, created these, we trained actors to portray common cases and then we looked at, it gave us the opportunity to send many physicians literally the same patient, um, you know, because it was an actor portraying the same thing over and over again. And then we looked to see who made contextual errors and who didn't. And then we literally costed out the difference based on the inappropriate tests they ordered. And one of the things we noticed is that when physicians miss life context issues, they tend to take a shotgun approach to ordering extra tests because they don't really quite know what's going on. They tend to order lots of consults and additional investigatory studies. I, again, I can give you lots of examples. And what we find is that that leads to a lot of misuse and overuse of healthcare services. And we actually, we published a, a, a paper in, in, in British Medical Journal, um, Quality and Patient Safety, really costing out these errors. And so I think Alan's point is well taken that this is not just a quality of care issue, but it's a measurable cost issue. Well, in your book, page 74, I think it's chapter three, 
I was shocked. I mean, you have a graph based on your research that shows in non-contextualized care, the probability of a good outcome is in the 40s, but in contextualized care, the probability of good outcome jumps to 70%. So, I mean, clearly your research is demonstrating there's a market difference. In fact, a decrement in the possibility or probability of the patient having a good outcome if care is not contextualized. So I have to say this, I'm reading your book and listening to you speak and having sat, as I mentioned, in exam rooms my entire career and observed, I have to say there's an emotional part to this. And, and again, we, we'll talk a little bit more about the outcomes of care and how they're impacted and the cost of care. And I think it's pretty obvious, even in, in the story you just shared of the woman who wasn't coming to dialysis because she was taking care of a child that she was responsible for, who was also sick and needed to get care. But I have to say the emotional part of this, when I've sat in rooms and observed, it's cringeworthy. And I just want to be very careful to make, make it clear this, from my perspective, this is not a criticism of physicians or providers. I think this is a criticism and critique of our healthcare system, how it's structured, how it's supported. And I'm not, I don't even know where to begin or know how to understand how this is. But all I know is that the miscontextual factors of people's lives in my limited observation is just is so common and so painful, so painful to observe a patient sitting there in front of a doctor and saying something about their life, which is sad or upsetting and definitely will impact their ability to actually do what the doctor is, is suggesting or recommending. And then to see the doctor for numerous reasons, not respond or not react or not put that into the plan of action. So for me, I, I'm literally, as I'm reading your book and I'm listening to you speak, I, I can feel that emotion of cringing because I've actually seen it. You know, um, Steve, that's a great point. I just, uh, you're telling, telling us about that perspective reminds me of one of the cases where we trained an actor um, to come into, and we went on about 50 visits and uh, he was trained to be a middle-aged man. He was a middle-aged guy and he was trained to say at a certain point in the visit, doc, it's been really tough since I've lost my job. And the presentation was that he had lost control of his asthma and we had him on a very expensive uh, brand name uh, inhaler. And the, the correct plan of care that we were hoping physicians would, would pick up on is that, uh, you know, he'd lost his insurance. And if the physician said, you know, well, how's it been tough since you've lost your job, he would reveal that. And then, you know, the, the appropriate care would be to switch him to a much cheaper generic. Um, and that happened about 30 to 40% of the time, but more often it was missed. And what we often heard on the audio recording was something, I guess that was kind of cringy so that you'd see the you'd hear the, the patient, or in this case, the actor say, you know, doc, it's been really tough, you know, since I lost my job. And then the patient, you can hear the doctor clicking away at the keyboard, like the click, 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 because they're, you know, they're busy looking at the screen as, you know, because we're all kind of um, hostage to that screen. And they would say something like, you know, um, yeah, you know, it, they'd say something, you know, it's, it's been a tough economy. And then they would say, do you have any allergies? And so it's like they're, you can tell that the physician is trying to be sympathetic. They're trying to say something sort of empathic in response because they know that the patient just said something painful, but then they're also trying to get through their checklist. So that their, their response of like, the patient said, it's been tough since I've lost my job. And the physician saying, do you have any allergies? You know, and you could just tell and that that's kind of where you cringe, if you know what I'm saying. And, you know, if, if, if you're the patient, you don't always know what's the important context for your healthcare, right? I mean, that's why you go to the doctor. So you, you, there might be cases where you're really upset about something and, and you suspect that it's related to your, uh, you know, your inability to, to care for yourself or, or their outcomes that you're having. But I think there are many more situations where you know, you're telling the doctor all kinds of things about your life and you're expecting 
that the doctor will follow up on the things that are really important to your healthcare. And um, when they don't, you assume, well, that's really not the issue. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's a, such a great point. You also made a point a moment ago, Saul, I think you, you said, and, and this was something I actually learned and did not really understand until I read your book. And I'll just quote one sentence from chapter six, the first sentence, we had learned that contextualizing care requires more than longer visits or empathic communication styles. And I think I was going into this when I first heard Yoni talk about you all and, and contextualized care. And I'm thinking, oh, is this good doctor patient communication, good bedside manner, empathy. And what I've learned from you is that it's not the same thing, that contextualized care is more than that. Could, could you speak to that? That's such an important distinction. Um, and I, just to go back actually to the example I, I, I gave with the, the, the doctor saying, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that, but then do you have any allergies? So that might have, you know, someone listening to that might say, oh, the doctor was empathic. The patient just said something's unfortunate. They'd lost their job. The doctor said, I'm so sorry to hear that. It's a tough economy. But then saying, do you have any allergies is where we have a problem because essentially the patient is not, um, is not getting through to the physician. What we would like to hear is the physician turn around and say, well, well gosh, uh, how's it been tough since you've lost your job? You know, are you having trouble paying for medication? And, you know, it reminds me, I had, I had a, a mentor, he's a family physician, uh, Simon Oster, who, who um, was incredibly influential to me when I was uh, much younger. And, and he often said that the, the best way to show you care is to ask questions. Um, and, and that had a huge impact on me. And, and that's a little different from, as you said, it's not the same as being, to, as saying something empathic. It, you know, when you turn, when someone says it's been tough since I've lost my job and you turn to them and you say, how has it been tough since you've lost your job? To me, that is caring um, because it, you're in a problem solving mode. You're actually trying to figure out, okay, what can I do to help this person? Um, which I think, and I think your point is well taken. That's different from just saying something empathic. It, it's a cognitive process and it reflects a kind of curiosity and a mindset of how, okay, th th how can I help problem solve for this individual? So Saul, I just want to say that phrase you just said, it may be one of the most important phrases I'm going to take away from this conversation. You said the best way to show you care is to ask questions. That's right. I think that's profound. I'm just struck by that statement, how obvious, how simple, and how little we do that. Where did you pick that up? Is that, that was from your mentor? Yeah, it was from my mentor. It was actually my, my wonderful family physician who practiced for many, many years, um, died just before the pandemic. It was almost 90, um, Simon Oster. And, and it was something that, that he used to say. And I think that the point here is it's not, and I think you, you caught this, it's not any question. Um, you know, obviously it's not how's the weather. It's, it's a question that reflects that you heard what the person just said and that you recognize that it calls for, um, it calls for further exploration. So because it, from the perspective of trying to help that individual. Um, and so when somebody says, boy, it's been tough since I've lost my job and you're in the, in the doctor's seat, you should be thinking to yourself, wow, um, that requires follow-up. I need to find out why that person said that thing. Um, um, and if you're thinking, if you're thinking even a little deeper, you're going to say, "Hmm, the chief, the chief complaint was that this person lost control of a chronic condition, and they happened to be on a really expensive brand name medication." So if you're really thinking, you might be connecting the dots. Um, and uh, and so when and 
and obviously I was, this example was from an unannounced standardized patient, but when we listen to real doctor patient encounters, we invite real patients to carry the audio recorders in, it's exactly the same thing. We listen for whether that physician is, and we call it contextual probing, but really it's asking, um, and interestingly, Alan Spiro, who's, who's on, the, uh, on, the, on, the, on, the, on this call now as well, um, used to also, he, he had a slightly different term for, he, he called it asking fearless questions. Um, and, and, and I think what, the reason I, I like that term also is because what I found is that residents and, and even attending physicians are sometimes afraid to ask those questions because um, it'll often create emotion. So if someone's lost their job and say, how's it been tough since you lost your job? They may start crying. Um, it could be, you, you're opening up a Pandora's box. And so I think sometimes when we're feeling very pressured, um, we have a certain fear and resistance to asking these questions, ironically, because we know they're important. And, and, and we know that we're opening a can of worms and yet, and yet that's how we're going to, um, that's how we're going to be helpful. As a, as a medical educator, I think there's also um, this problem, if you like, that, you know, we train our physicians to uh, immediately listen to complaints and symptoms and um, use the incredible cognitive system that we have to begin to think about what the problem is and to think about medical problems. Uh, so the moment the patient comes in with the asthma getting worse, um, you know, the good physician is already thinking about what are the things that cause asthma to get worse. And they're thinking about the things they've learned about, which are things that apply to many people. And they're not necessarily thinking about this particular person's particular situation. Um, so the questions that come to mind, the, the workup that they naturally do, um, will be the workup they're used to doing. Um, and uh, Saul's uh, point about asking particular questions, or Alan's point about asking fearless questions, really is about directing attention to the individual patient, which is not what we, we actually train people to do. We tell people that the job of the physician is to advocate for and care for their individual patient, but how to do that um, is not something that we spend a lot of time on. Yeah. And you know, what I learned from both of you in reading your book is that it's, it's really kind of a series of steps, right? And you actually outline it in chapter six. It's picking up on these contextual clues as you were articulating, asking the questions to better understand, but also the patient's circumstances and how those circumstances impact their healthcare and their health, and then actually to build it into the plan of care, to accommodate it. And if you miss any of those steps, you, you're not going to do right by the patient and not deliver the optimal care and not get the optimal outcomes. A question you talked about, one of the most instructive things I read was these 10 domains. And actually, I think I saw, I think it was Saul, I think I saw you in a YouTube, uh, one of these mini lectures. It was excellent, by the way. And you talked about the 10 domains. So what are the, these sort of, through your research, you identified 10 areas of contextualization. I'm not sure if I'm saying that the right way, but I was wondering if you could share those with us because I, I have found them to be incredibly instructive. Yeah, so um, actually uh, it was 10 for many years and then we ended up doing um, a rigorous study with focus groups of physicians and patients and it expanded to 12. So it's now actually 12 domains, but um, uh, that's not a critical point. But the, the, um, what's key here is that when you think about a person's life, a patient's life, um, and you think about the challenges that, that could be going on in their life that could be directly relevant to their care at that visit, we found it's helpful to have some sort of typology. And over the years, 
um, again, it started out as sort of 10 broad domains, then it became 12. And these are basically buckets into which you can put life challenges that a, a range of patients face. And six of them are um, uh, challenges pertinent to their life circumstances, and six are challenges that are direct drivers of behavior. So within the challenges that are uh, pertain to circumstances, it could it, there are first uh, what we call access to care issues. Um, so it could be that a person doesn't have transportation to an appointment in the example that, that, that Alan gave. We can see many, many access to care issues. Um, it could be that no one's answering the phone when they try to get through to a, a large hospital to make an appointment, anything that gets in the way of access. A, a second example would be a comp any competing responsibility. So it could be that that person, um, and I gave a few examples earlier, it could be that uh, they are uh, you know, working the night shift, or it could be that um, they're taking care of a sick family member. And again, the point here is it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a life change. It could be either good or bad. But regardless, it could, it could account for why, for instance, their hemoglobin A1C has gone up, right? If all of a sudden somebody's glycated hemoglobin has gone from seven to nine, meaning they've lost control of their diabetes, that could be because of either, either of those broad domains, right? Um, uh, and then there's the, the next ones are social support, a disruption to social support, a financial situation issue, a change to their environment, and then a, a change in their resources. And then on the, on the behavior side, the other six, um, we've got uh, one is what we call the broad category of skills, abilities, and knowledge. So that could be somebody, for instance, who's developed arthritic fingers, so they're no longer able, I'll go with the diabetes example, they're no longer able to dose their insulin syringe because they can't, their fingers are, are, are painful and brittle. Or it could be that they're developing cognitive deficits, and so they're getting confused. Um, when you're the doctor, what you may see is that their blood pressure or their diabetes has gone out of control. That's the, uh, that's the immediate observed effect. And then your job is to figure out what's behind that, what's the context. And the context could be any of those things, right? Um, and in, in the hypothetical example I'm giving you, it could be that they're developing a skills deficit, or it could be another example is emotional state. It could be they become depressed, right? And if someone becomes depressed and they're distracted, they may no longer be taking uh, their medications as they used to because of all the effects of depression. And that may present to you as a loss of control, again, in this example of diabetes, but the context is that they are depressed. And until you identify that context and address it, you're not going to be able to fix the presenting problem. And again, the other, the other categories, um, just to be complete here, are we have one for cultural perspectives and spiritual beliefs. We have one for attitude towards illness, one for attitude towards the healthcare um, provider and system, and finally one related to health and behavior. Um, and I'll mention that the, as we start to talk a little bit more about um, Laguna, um, who we've been working with closely to kind of bring this into, um, into, uh, into their mission, um, emotional state has turned out to be a particularly important one because the goal of Laguna is to um, uh, keep patients from getting readmitted to the hospital. And, um, and, and the reason we, um, they came to us is because so many of the factors that determine whether somebody lands in the hospital um, after going home um, are, are essentially contextual. And one of the big ones is um, any change to their emotional state, which can be, um, by the way, it can be anxiety. It's not necessarily depression because coming home from the hospital um, after serious illness is extremely anxiety provoking. So anyway, those are the 12 domains. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Laguna because I'm going to I'm gonna transition us over to talking about Laguna. And so Yoni and uh, Dr. Spire, I'm, gonna, I'm just giving you notice. I'm going to call on you in a second. I think in terms of the transition, though, there are a whole bunch of questions as I was reading your book. I was writing furiously on the sides of the pages questions. And you talked about in your study of the providers who were doing this in the clinic and doctors who were very, very good at contextualized care versus those that weren't, 
you talked about archetypes in chapter five and sort of an archetype for a contextualized care doctor versus one that, that wasn't practicing contextualized care. And in my mind, there were a bunch of questions, obviously, is it teachable? And you did talk about that. But the questions that came to mind, and maybe this does skate into Laguna and the use of technology and larger systems, but the thought was this, you sort of been looking at it from the paradigm perspective of one physician, one provider, one patient. And I, I guess I'm wondering, should contextualized care really be a team sport? A lot of organizations have health coaches and navigators and social workers and behavioral therapists and community health workers. And so there's a team where it's not just the one provider, everything rests on that person's shoulder, including contextualized care. Should this be spread out as a team endeavor? And should it, even taking it one step further, from a systems theory, from a, a reliability science perspective, from an error-proofing perspective, should it be embedded into the technology, whether it's an electronic medical record system, some AI-enhanced NLP software that can detect these contextual clues, these triggers, and, and prompt the question? So the notion that it's, again, legacy healthcare, one doctor, one patient, but now we have team-based approaches with people that are both in the clinic as well as out in the community. And now even, even more so, we've got technology where you don't even have to be geolocated and uh, care could be just as good, if not better, because of some of the enhancements in technology. So I know that was a lot to put on the plate, but that's where my mind went as I started to come towards the end of your book. And so Alan and, and Saul, do you want to take a, a crack at that and maybe hand it over to Dr. Sparrow and Yoni? The answer is yes, 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 <laughs> right? We can, we can make individual doctors better at this. We can help them uh, be, be more thoughtful about doing it. We can create systems around them that um, prompt and cue them based in technology and the electronic health records. Saul might talk to you a little bit about a study we just completed in that area. Um, we could prompt patients to some degree and we can expand the team. Um, and we have done some work looking at uh, health coaches uh, who are often um, much better at asking those questions um, in part because they're trained to and they're focused on asking about patient context. So I think you're, you know, there are a variety of individual and system uh, interventions we could be looking at that could improve this problem. Saul, did you want to add to that? Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely. And I, I think what I would add to that is one of the things that uh, we've been working with Laguna on is uh, just what you, we're getting at, see, which is this opportunity to scale by combining uh, a technology with a coach model. So the basic premise um, which is supported by our work is that when somebody goes through, unfortunately, when you're discharged from the hospital, there's often a lot of context that is either not addressed or not anticipated. So, and we, so somebody goes home from the hospital, let's suppose somebody's had surgery, let's suppose it's an elderly person, maybe they live alone, maybe they depend on family. And we've actually um, uh, audited some of the, the uh, interactions that the, some of the patients that Laguna is tracking. And, you know, it could be some, I'm thinking of one in particular, a guy who, um, you know, goes home with a catheter in, uh, 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 and he's, you know, he's spending a lot of time in bed. He's not, he's not even sure when his next appointment is. He doesn't know when the catheter is supposed to come out. And so what a Laguna coach does is they, they, they see all the red flags and we've been helping training them to do that. They reach out and they basically start working with this person, identifying, you know, who in the family, you know, knows what's going on. Maybe it's a daughter. Um, the dad's a little confused. He's, um, you know, maybe he's developing a little bit of confusion because he's in the early stages of developing a urinary tract infection, which unfortunately happens when the catheter gets lifted and all the kind of stuff that we see over and over again. That's where Laguna can intervene and prevent that rehospitalization because somebody's, re somebody's seeing the red flags. Now, how do they do that? There are a couple of ways. One is, 
um, simply through an app they're developing, which allows them to track a lot of things um, that may be going on in the household. Like if somebody's not moving around, um, that's concerning, right? You can start to track that sort of information. And then for patients who are able to, or family members, we've been working on developing um, uh, features where the patient themselves can answer simple questions about whether they're struggling with any life issue. And that can go directly to um, the platform that the coaches at Laguna are monitoring. So they'll, they'll immediately know that that patient is trying to tell them that there's an issue. And I think that's really the basic model here of kind of combining technology with kind of coaching backup. Now, I would like to, of course, defer to Yoni and Alan Spiro, um, who of course are at the center of all of this, but that's kind of the link to, to the contextualization of care framework. Do you, do you got, one of you guys wanna comment? I'm happy to. Uh, the whole really um, challenge, and it's a challenge that I've recognized for years and why I've been close with Saul and Alan for years to work on this, is how do you make it scalable? And one of the things you do is you have to understand the role a IT system plays in encouraging certain behavior, um, such as what Saul, the story Saul told a little while ago when he talked about the person um, just hearing clicking when you listen to the recording and then having them say, uh, do you have any allergies? Uh, the system has prompted that line of thought. In that same way, a system can encourage the probing of contextual issues. It can be self-service via an app. And that's what we at Laguna have built with Saul and Alan's help. Yeah, and that was Dr. Alan Spira who jumped in. Yoni, could you just give a brief overview of what Laguna is for those folks who have not heard our interview together or aren't aware of, of what Laguna Health is? Gladly, gladly, and thank you for having me on here. Um, at Laguna, we built technology-enabled systems to help people going through surgeries and hospitalizations transition home and recover and that home setting in the months after without having any escalations to more acute and expensive sites of care, including a readmission. And, you know, that, that is a problem that was kind of designed, if you will, for the contextualized care approach that, you know, Saul and Alan developed over the last several decades. And you need patient engagement to really model that life context. And this um, moment of transition from hospitalization to the home is one where individuals are highly vulnerable and in pain, which drives very high engagement if you have that life context-oriented clinical model. What's interesting is if you infuse technology into this, it really drives an unparalleled scale to what was done before. If you add AI-driven tools such as NLP, voice analytics, you can really scale the identification of these red flags and barrier identification. You can start building really sophisticated models that can build real-time stratified models to understand who each member is across their biological, across their psychological life context aspects. And all of that is a function of the goals they may have. And mind you, their goals could be clinical ones and could be to Saul and Alan's comment, goals that are driven by the life context. And once you're able to synthesize all of that in a technology-driven model, at that point, you can unlock a lot of value, help them recover well, and really build a highly engaging model for the months thereafter. 
So Yoni and team, really just amazing. I want to say something and have you guys respond to it, but just in terms of uh, one of the things I learned from you, Yoni, was that in terms of the home, someone gets discharged from the hospital and then they run into trouble of one sort or another that leads to a problem for them, potentially uh, back to the emergency room, back into the hospital readmissions. What percentage of the time is that a consequence of a contextual factor versus, let's say, just a purely clinical or physical factor? And this could be for any one of you. Is it 20% of the time it's a contextual issue or is it 50 or is it 70? I, I, I think that from our experience, and this is a ballpark number, I don't have data in front of me. Um, the majority of issues are contextual. Contextual mm -hmm. and under contextual, I include emotional. It, Much it, more it, than 50 and I'll refine, I'll kind of build on Alan's commentary here, Zev. Uh, the interesting part is that it's not only that contextual aspects are the root cause of outcomes and clinical manifestations, they're also the leading indicator. And so the interesting part is that by having that clinical model, you're able to see that early and prevent such that life context, behavioral, emotional issues that are untreated, if you will, compound and escalate and ultimately present themselves as clinical ones, which goes back to Alan's commentary that the majority are driven by these fundamental drivers. So Yoni, since our conversation a few months ago, I've done some reading and that's what I'm learning is that it, it is contextual is often the root cause even of the clinical problems. And it is the majority reason why you see these decrements in, in health after discharge or just even with chronic disease at home or the frail elderly. So, so Saul and Alan, I'm completely beginning to see a picture which I had not seen before in terms of, and Dr. Spiro, you, you really said this before even we got on, this, this notion of, of how you take this science of contextual care or contextualized care and using the platform and the technology, how you really embed it. And so let, let me just, I just wrote down notes as you all were talking. So here's the ways I heard you expand and scale and systematize contextualized care first you were talking about hiring the right people. So you have people who have some expertise in contextualized care, then you train them, right? Saul and Alan, you were talking about training these folks as to be the core part of your team. So you've got folks that are hired for and trained for. On top of that, you're sending surveys and questionnaires to the patient. I'm assuming some, many of them are automated. So you're monitoring this sort of contextual milieu each and every day. On top of that, you're using remote patient monitoring. So some of this stuff you can actually monitor, like you, I think Yoni, you mentioned the idea of movement, right? And that could be monitored. And then you were talking about using the technology, AI enabled NLP to really pick up on contextual factors people may say or in their voice. And then Alan, Dr. Spiro, you talked about the fact that whereas traditional electronic medical record systems may actually divert a physician's attention from contextualized factors, your system actually has it built into it to prompt people to focus on it. So I don't know if that's six or seven different ways you've really taken this core science that Dr. Wiener and Dr. Schwartz have developed over the last couple of decades and have just taken it to a completely different level in terms of scaling it and embedding it into the system. And so I, I just want to know where did I miss this or where did I go wrong or, or what more can you add to what I'm learning from you all? So yeah, I was just going to reinforce uh, um, one of the things you said, which I think Alan Spiro may have also um, been about to say. Um, it's really important to point out that what um, Lagoon is doing is as you put it, like the opposite of uh, what's happening in the exam room. So in the exam room, the physician is staring at a bunch of check boxes 
um, where they're being asked, you know, questions that may have nothing to do with what the patient really needs at that moment, like do you have any allergies when the patient is crying out for help. Um, uh, what we're doing at Laguna is, is the reverse, right? We're creating a platform. So if you if you have a trained uh, coach sitting at a console and they're, they're, they're looking at their screen, it's doing just the opposite. If the patient is indicated, for instance, on the app, uh, that they're struggling because some pharmacy won't give them uh, a medication um, uh, that uh, that they desperately need, um, or um, or they can't get through to get an appointment, whatever it is, um, that uh, that is going to immediately pop up and prompt the coach to start asking questions to try to better understand what's going on and what the next steps are. Uh, and, I, and I think that's kind of what what uh, what what Alan was referring to when he talked about um, how you know we're kind of designing to do sort of the reverse of what what's happening in the uh, unfortunate current healthcare technology environment. Um, Alan, I, I cut you off there, but I just wanted to get that point out. No, I, I appreciate it. The other thing is I wanna stress how hard this is. We are very fortunate in having a tech team and the clinical team and the tech team work extremely closely together because it is not easy to build these kinds of systems that encourage contextualized care rather than discourage it, which is the current state. Thanks for sharing that. Even as I was saying what I said before, I was thinking, oh my God, this is, this is profound. It is altering healthcare, but how hard it must be to do this from a technologic perspective. And actually, could you give an example of how, and I, I think Saul, you just gave an example, or Alan, you just gave an example of, of how Laguna has built this and, and how it helps. Do you, do you have another sort of vignette from Laguna Health and how this embedded contextualized care in the technology can help a patient running into trouble or prevent that from happening? Um, I guess we could all answer it. Let me def- I've been talking so much. Um, Alan or Yoni, do you want to comment or would you like me to? Go right ahead. Uh, Go right ahead. Yeah. So um, uh, what we've been doing is uh, during this process, um, before we started developing uh, a training program for the coaches, is we were basically just listening to, we have people on our team who are, have a lot of experience at this and just listening to these, these, these conversations between um, the, the, the coach um, and, and the patient. And uh, what they do is they listen for these four elements that I talked about earlier, which is, is there some clue that the person is struggling? Um, is the physician, I'm sorry, in this case, it's a coach. Are they noticing and asking? Is the patient revealing some underlying issue? And then is, is Laguna taking steps to, uh, to intervene? And you know, when we started doing this, um, yeah, they were performing pretty well. They hired really good people. Um, uh, and they actually have uh, an outstanding um, uh, person who's been leading the, I guess you could say the emotion part of it. Um, and so they're, they're actually very good at picking up on, on the anxiety and, and, the, um, and the depression, which by the way, is an incredibly important domain um, uh, for people coming home from the hospital. But we also found that there was you know, lots of room for improvement as you would expect. And this is before we started to do, to do the training. Um, and so we would hear um, uh, examples where the patient would say something that indicated, for instance, I'm thinking of one example at the moment um, where a patient had come home, he'd been, he'd had, he'd been treated for atrial fibrillation and um, the, uh, he was told not to exercise um, uh, until he got a, a, an okay. They had, done a, an, uh, they had done some sort of in- intervention. There were some cardiac issues going on, but um, he had mentioned that he was exercising and very active because somebody in his family member who was quote unquote, a healthcare professional had told him it was fine to do so. Um, and, um, and, you know, that's one of those situations where, um, you know, the coach would, if you, again, if you look at the coach would say, okay, that's a red flag. 
you know, you, um, you, you're now doing something that's different from what your doctor said you should do. And by the way, the Laguna team has the discharge note, they get it. Um, and, and basically what we heard on the audio was that the Laguna um, coach basically said, hey, you know, it's great that you have a healthcare professional in your family, but um, you know, it's really, that person is ne- may not have your medical record. Um, they, they don't clearly, and it's really important that you work with that person who does, who's, who's you know, your cardiologist. What I thought was really nice about it is they didn't insult or demean um, and say, oh, well, you know, who knows, is this a nurse? Is it a doctor? Are they cardiologists? They didn't say any of that. They could have. Instead, they just said, it's really important for you to work with somebody who actually has your medical record and knows you personally. And it was a very diplomatic way of telling the patient that, you know, you need to talk to your doctor before you start running out again and doing that kind of activity. And so I would say um, that's a, uh, just one of many, many examples of, the, of, the, of a coach going through those four steps, picking up on something subtle and perhaps preventing a mishap. Yeah, what we've been doing with Solomon Allen's help is literally building that all into the system. So the kind of prompts, either the coaches or could be a case manager at a hospital system, um, sees is that the prompt is, this is a red flag, probe it. And we go through all of this um, to our own barrier index, which is based on the domains of context. And we actually have what are called mini plans of care, POCs, as to ways to create the contextualized care plan that will address it. And we're building that all into a a robust system. And uh, honestly, we have the architecture for the system. We have a lot of it built, but it's a growing piece because we're learning more every day from Saul and Alan and from our own experiences working with members and patients. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Spiro. I just want to say this is, it feels to me like I'm just starting to interview you and really understand the work you're doing. It is so, so needed. I know that the folks who are out there listening are probably nodding their heads in agreement. This is so needed. It's needed by, and I think Alan, thanks for sharing this. It's needed by providers as well. And it's needed by patients. It's needed by the whole care team and it's needed by families. And so Alan, Dr. Spire, I'd love to actually, and you and I've talked about this offline, I'd love to actually follow up this interview with maybe in, in a few weeks or so interviewing you and, and really I'd love to dive down into the emotionality part that you, you emphasize, because I just don't think that gets enough play and enough understanding. And you all have taken it to a different level of, of actually doing something about it to help people. So I just can't thank you all enough. Just want to say again, Dr. Saul Wiener. Dr. Alan Schwartz, the two world's experts in contextualized care, literally wrote the book. Can't thank you enough for the years you've put into this and, and what you're doing now with Laguna Health, with Dr. Alan Spiro and Yoni Stein and, and all their colleagues at Laguna Health. Being in the business and focusing on this area, I will just say I take my hat off to you in so many different ways. Just also, as I do every episode, I conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work, the really hard work each and every day of taking care of patients, and those of you who are supporting those who are directly taking care of patients, I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. My friends, I hope you've enjoyed and benefited from this particular dialogue as much as I have. This is Zev Neuwirth on Creating New Healthcare. Until next time, be safe and be well.